Welcome to the Food Fight podcast and to our 2023 trends episode, where we look back at the past year to anticipate the landscape of the future. And to celebrate that fact, I'm finally back in the studio after two year hiatus, which I'm absolutely delighted about to be here again. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Matt Eastland, and I'm from EIT Food, the world's largest food innovation community improving food together. There are many reasons for the food system to be excited going into the new year. The world continues to align itself on meeting sustainability goals. We're seeing more and more exciting entrepreneurs bringing their innovations to market. And the continued focus on healthier diets means we can expect more interesting and nutritious products on our shelves. But there are still plenty of opportunities out there for activists, entrepreneurs and innovators to make their mark on the food system. And to talk to us today about the trends that are driving these opportunities are two people working at the edge of this incredible space. First of all, I'd like to welcome Sam Newman, who's the Senior Enterprise Account Executive and Chief Cheese Officer at TasteWise. TasteWise is an AI platform which provides the food industry with data-driven solutions so companies can innovate faster, market better and grow sales. They work with some really big global brands who use the platform to discover new flavours, develop ideas and create big impact campaigns. I really can't wait to pick your brain, Sam. Great to have you with us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And returning for his third appearance on the show is Ed Bergen, Senior Analyst for Food and Nutrition at FutureBridge. FutureBridge is a management consulting company that delivers strategic insights on evolving technologies and markets. They work on a one to 25 year perspective, keeping businesses ahead of the curve by identifying new opportunities in a variety of sectors. Great to have you back, Ed. So exciting to be back, even though senior analyst is all very nice, but chief cheese officer <laughs> I think when when you grow up as a what as a kid and when you like your cheese and you're going what do I want to be when I grow up and some kids thought yes. astronauts and this chief cheese officer and I'm so I, yeah. glad I'm you said this because that was going to be the first place I started because we can't <laughs> we can't let that fly I want to know what this means so Sam what does chief cheese officer mean and how does that fit into the work that you do over at TasteWise? Yeah, so it, it's a great question, and it's more of an internal, ongoing joke with my office that, <laughs> you know how they say you should dress for the job you want, not the job you have? And that's kind of my theory here. I love cheese. I've always <laughs> loved cheese, um, which doesn't always agree with my stomach, but that's a different story. Although we'll talk gut health in a little bit, I think. Yeah, and so when I started at TasteWise a few years ago, I just kind of declared myself the chief cheese officer, and any new employee that starts here we ask them on their first day, what is your favorite cheese? And it's funny because it tells you a lot about a person, right? It's like, are you a vegan? Do you eat dairy-based cheese? There's a whole big world of non-animal dairy products, right? Like so many companies doing this. So just asking people, what is your favorite cheese is a very awkward way of welcoming <laughs> them into this business. Um, <laughs> and I'm totally okay with that. Love it. Love it. Love it. Okay. Thanks for that, Sam. And Ed, you know, you're back on the show for the, the you know third time round. Can you just quickly remind all of our listeners about who you are and what you do at FutureBridge? So as I said, I'm Ed Bergen. So I'm a senior analyst at FutureBridge within their food and nutrition department, a mixture of this type of thing, talking about the trends that my fabulous team of scientists, of which I am not, all the work that they're doing, looking at these early stage technologies and putting that out to the world and, and hopefully translating a lot of very, very techie stuff into translatable 
jargon, words. So a little bit of that. And then I guess my background is in storytelling and trying to talk about the future of our food systems. I think I even mentioned her name last time and always bringing her up, but thinking about Sally from Skipton in the north of England and the fact that it's great to talk about innovation, but unless we think about the person that is working hard, thinking about their next paycheck and making sure they can feed their family, does innovation, you know, it's all well and good, but we've got to think about them as well. And so whether innovation will translate. So that's something that I'm quite passionate about, but uh, hopefully I can bring something again today. I'm really looking forward to it. Amazing. Thanks, Ed. And to your point about the the person in mind is absolutely something we're going to get into because I think it's fair to say that the world has changed quite a lot since we last spoke and never more have we focused on people who are you know going through tough times. Before we do that, I realise, Sam, that we didn't, after you telling us about your chief cheese officer, we didn't actually ask you specifically, what do you do at TasteWise other than, <laughs> other than love cheese? Other than judge people's uh, <laughs> cheese remarks. Yeah, so I um, I come from the enterprise side of our business. I work with uh, global food and beverage brands. I'm basically translating food and beverage trends into new products. So working yeah, with global FMCGs, if you're in the UK, CPGs, if you're in the US, and saying, okay, what are people eating today? What will people be eating in, say, 12 to 18 months? And then how can we either create new products with that, as well as bring them to market. So it's how do you create new content, new recipes, new social posts, do a lot of work actually in the food service space, which COVID has caused such a change to and has been a big focus for our business. I think historically, the focus has often been retail, mm. right? We've been selling into retail for a lot of thousands of years, beginning to understand food service, especially when restaurants then closed, became just such a big kind of like dark hole mm. <laughs> for the majority of businesses. So working with a lot of teams also to figure out how can I get my products onto a table in the food service space? When we talk the future of food, the innovation often can start in food service. So if we want to know where the world is going, we have to be in either someone's actual kitchen or specifically in a restaurant. So that's what I do. Amazing. Got it. That's super clear. Thank you so much for that, Sam. Okay, so let's talk about the context, you know, the world that we're living in today and, and how that is changing things. So I think it's fair to say that the world is facing some pretty serious challenges at the moment. Actually, on our last episode, episode 102, we were talking about the cost of living and how that was sort of changing the way people are, you know, buying food, cooking food and, and living more broadly. Food insecurity, increased cost of living. So those are two big challenges. And there is a real need right now for affordable, equitable food. So with that in mind... What can we expect to see over the years ahead in relation to the challenges that we're facing right now? So what trends are driving the food system based on our context and how might that continue? Um, maybe, Sam, can we start with you? Yeah, I think um, if we look at it as, for lack of a term, yeah, food insecurity, cost of living rate, affordability, something that always initially pops to my mind in this conversation is prioritization. People, right, with just fewer resources, all of us included, are going to need to figure out, like, do we stick to the brand, right? Do we stick to what is better for us? Do we stick to what is cheaper? Maybe you're a single parent with multiple children who, quite frankly, just can't afford a lot. Um, perhaps you're on food stamps. So I think one question is figuring out, like, 
what actually are people going to be prioritizing? And that can be based on an array of, of different factors. Two things that I know that we often talk about at the taste-wise side, kind of as we head into the next, say, I hope six months, but probably it will be a bit, little longer than that. One is actually escapism. And it's something that we saw in really during COVID as well, when people were indoors, is people travel the world. They want to see things. They want to eat things. They want to explore new ideas, new concepts, new dishes. And when they don't have the money to do so, or they're restricted by government travel, it means they have to start exploring other ways to do that. We saw all through COVID a major shift to different types of international cuisines. People were stuck at home and thought, well, I guess now's my time to try making beef bourguignon because I'm not going to France, <laughs> right? And so people just looking for different ways to escape through food. One of the other ones we also then talk about a lot is creativity. When you maybe can't afford the most pretentious of cheeses as we would all like to, um, <laughs> right? When we when when you can't necessarily afford products you've historically been used to, I know that rising meat costs. I saw I think over the summer there was a restaurant in the Hamptons and it was twelve chicken fingers with a thing of fries for ninety two dollars. Oh my lord. Now, granted, that's the Hamptons, but to quote my father, right, like, does it come with dental insurance, <laughs> right? Like, that's a, that's a crazy amount of money, right? So if people can't necessarily use products they've historically used, they're going to start to get more creative. I think that actually, and we can talk opportunities in a minute, mm. because as people get more creative, that's where innovation and opportunity really happens. Defo. So prioritization, creativity, and escapism. escapism. Yeah, love that. Okay. And and Ed, what about yourself? What are you seeing? You know, what, what do you think is going to continue or do you think it's going to continue? I'm going to come out of this from two angles, but I'm going to carry on talking about prioritization. And at the beginning of COVID, this happened, which was consumers went, I need long life food. I actually think long life food have a really interesting future in the market. And, I, and I'm really concerned about the future of fresh. I think fresh mm. food will continue to be expensive, will continue to be hard to find. And when people are going to prioritize, can I have something that pretty much tastes the same from a can or a, from a freezer or and I can cook with it and still have my smoked provolone lasagna. I don't know. But can I get that from a, in a long life form that means it can stay in my cupboards for for excess? Then at least I still get to have those experiences mm -hmm. that Sam's referenced. And I think when stuff like this happens or when the whatever hits the fan, consumers really make very clever choices and that will be one of them. They'll realize, actually, I'm I'm not so fussed about the worries of having something that's vac packed. It's okay, because actually, it's more important that I put food on the table. So I actually think long life foods are going to have a really interesting future. And that's one. Mm -hmm. But the other side is, as in the in globally, we hit the 8 billion mark. I think it was last week, that, wasn't yeah. it announced last week, we hit yeah. 8 billion. Two countries, to be fair, are making up most of that 8 billion, what with China and India, but we, we hit 8 billion. And we absolutely must fast track, and I know we're going to come on to it, but new, good value, healthy proteins, good value, healthy fruits and ingredients that consumers need for a balanced diet and get them to market as fast as we can. Legislations need to help because it's not working right now. It's not going to continue to work this way. So... It means that innovation is not going to be stopped by the fact that there's, the, there's a crisis. Actually, I think a lot of times you get regulators going, 
come on, we actually have to help right now, really help get these things to market. And if they're safe to eat, let's not, you know, wait around. So I'm looking forward to alternative proteins, alternative dairy, new seafood options, more sustainable options coming to market that might be from fresh sources, but meaning that the price can stay at a place where average consumers can still experience and enjoy. So there's a few things there, but at the moment, long life, I think is going to have a really good few years. Mm, fascinating. Long life is going to have a long life. Um, <laughs> so you see, Ed, one of the opportunities, and this is something Sam was saying, one of the opportunities that might come out of this is what faster deregulation, perhaps, you know, things getting to market quicker so that we'll get things on our plates faster. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So and my favorite one of the year, I don't know if I talked about it last year, my favorite regulation change this year was that the mung bean, you're allowed to eat it in Europe within the alternative egg space. Ooh, and what oh, that wow. might mean for alternative eggs, which has been an, a bit of innovation, but frankly, not great. We've still got a lot of problems in that space compared to meat and dairy. And it's ingredients like that where it's quite good value. It's quite nutritious. It can be quite versatile, but more regulations like that. And we'll talk about cultivation later and we might get into some detail, but currently in cultivated, we're still stuck in Singapore overall. We've got the FDA just talking about approvals a week that. ago, mm. just about, but we're still stuck in Singapore. So these are the type of changes that they need to look at and go, okay, let's get this product so that the companies that are innovating can make them and try and start thinking about not regulations, but cutting the price. And, and expansions. And at the moment, there's still a lot of risk. So they're a bit worried about it. So get the regulations through and then the companies can really start working on them. But I think deregulation is going to be a big one. And it's not just for food creation, but also for new farming techniques, new lab grown changes, new technologies and genetic changes to ingredients to make them cheaper, healthier and more sustainable. There's so many areas that could be looked at, but deregulation is going to be a big one. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You know, in times of crisis, you often see some of the most interesting innovations actually coming out because like you say, people just have to do things. And I guess we saw a lot of that uh, through the pandemic as well. Sam, on your side, just, just briefly before we start talking about, you know, the various different areas like sustainability, what are the companies sort of saying to you in terms of are they seeing this as a time of of innovation where where they're really looking to drive things or actually are they seeing it as a time of real hardship on their side and they're actually cutting back in this space i think they kind of find themselves straddling the fence and i say this in the fact that you talk to innovation teams and marketing teams who by nature are dreamers right they dream up ideas. I studied architecture in college, architectural history, and we often can attribute the development of skyscrapers to the Russians, right? Because they had literally no money and couldn't build anything more than a like maybe two stories. So they said, wait, let's go build crazy buildings that don't even stand based on gravity, but they had nothing. So they just thought of crazy concepts. And I think we see kind of that on the one side. I know we'll talk in a bit of, you know, are we going to Mars, but <laughs> let's create awesome, interesting ideas, whole new ways of re-envisioning this ecosystem. And yet at the same time, being very grounded in the concept of I can't get blueberries for the next three months. So raspberries it is, um, <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> right? And thinking I would love to bring my innovation, but I, but I think that actually creates a unique paradigm because you need those dreamers to just not almost have the ability to express themselves, to let their minds run free. Mm -hmm. And then you need the reality of, well, raspberries it's going to be, maybe we'll do your, you know, 
blueberry in, in three to six months. But that was fine 30 years ago, right? We, we were yeah. 40 years ago. We were fine that you got raspberries when you got raspberries. You got blueberries when you got blueberries and you didn't have them all year round. We didn't care then. <laughs> yeah. So so we just need to yeah change the expectations, but then absolutely, and I'm using milk it for all that's worth when you have in-season raspberries. Yeah. Why would you need blueberries right now? We've got in-season raspberries. And I don't think that happens anymore so much. It's just we've got raspberries, they're two pounds or two fifty now. We've got blueberries, they're two fifty. And then in little writing it says it came from Morocco. It came from where who cares? Just, just absolutely celebrate when you do have in season because it's gone very quiet. I think when I look at shelves today, it's amazing. You bring this up real fast. Like I I'm based in Tel Aviv and granted we get 300 something sunny days a year, which is very lovely as someone born in, in upstate New York. But you know, there are about a four week period where I eat more strawberries than I've ever eaten in my life because <laughs> you go to the grocer across the street. Right. And it's strawberry season. You eat strawberries. It's watermelon mm -hmm. season. You eat watermelons. You talk to the average New Yorker. And I say this with, love for New Yorkers in my heart, right? It's like, what do you mean you don't have this every single day for under $2? And I think COVID caused people to realize, well, here's a fruit that I can eat today. Let's try this. I think also if we can go back to some cyclical nature of when things naturally grow, quite frankly, people will appreciate it. One, they'll appreciate it more. And two, it will often just taste much better because as my mother would say, it doesn't have many frequent flyer miles on it to make it taste worse. Which allows us to naturally bridge into sustainability. So you guys are already going there. I mean, it feels to me like, again, this sort of constrained environment that we're in is actually making people rethink, maybe revalue the food and the choices that they make. And let's just go into the space of, so we started talking about a little about localism, but what about food waste and loss? You know, so with the squeeze on living standards that we're all going through, does that mean that people are valuing food more? And do you think that means that people are going to be more conscious about wasting or not wasting food? Or actually, are you seeing trends to the contrary? Ed, what do you think? Well, the first thing is we've seen every supermarket out there removing labels this year, haven't they? They've removed the date from the label. Yep. So at a simple level, and I'm hoping because they haven't got that label, consumers will not just bin the stuff. They'll look at them and go, yeah, this looks all right. So... It, again, is it a consumer-driven thing? Actually, just the, the supermarkets have made that decision to change that. And that's great. That will help, you know, change this in the market. On the food waste angle, my big concerns is however much you put, this is recyclable, however much you change the top of a Coke bottle to have the lid attached to it a little bit so it might recycle, or that you, you know, still put it in plastic, but you've not put a label on it so it doesn't go in the bin I'm really concerned that actually the backing infrastructure isn't there to help help actually recycle these things. And from an at-home food waste point of view, yeah, of course, I think consumers are going to be better and more focused about what's gone off and what hasn't, which is why I think that people will buy more long-life foods as a result. We did it at the beginning of COVID. It was great. Mm. You know, We really worked away. But I'm still incredibly disappointed in this area. I think that we need more efforts from our companies, from our governments, from people as well, but it's harder for people because they're just trying to get by. This is an area where all the technology in the world, we, we really need to change behavior. And sometimes you need a bit of force to do that, mm. like the plastic bag tax, which came in. 
can we do a waste tax? Is it possible? Because that does change behavior. And this is a behavior that I'm I'm still very skeptical about that's not changing as quickly as we would like. Yeah, I agree. And I remember, um, God, I can't remember which episode it is, but when we had Emily Van Popperengi from Oddbox on, I think she referred to food waste as the, the unseen monster of climate change, which I just think is the most amazing phrase because it's just kind of happening and we could all do so much more. Sam, on your side, are you kind of... Are brands starting to do more on this? Are are you seeing changes in the sector? Are they tightening things up? Yeah, I think sustainability is, first of all, the question is, how do we define sustainability, right? And this one, yeah, when we talk health in a minute also applies. Historically, sustainability has been just a word, right? It's like, oh, is this sustainable? I remember my my brother was an organic farmer for a few years after college. And in order to be registered as an organic farmer in New York State, I think at the time you basically had to pay 35 bucks and sign that you certified yourself organic. <laughs> and I remember thinking, right, like this is New York State. <laughs> I'm expecting a little better. So like, I would like to think that has in some way changed, right? You could pay for a much higher certification, but who actually would know the difference? So why do so? So one question is actually like, what even is sustainability? And I think we're starting to see consumers demand a lot more from that term. One of the things that we often talk about from a taste-wise side and that we see our clients talking about as well is a move from, I would say, end of life sustainability, as in what do we do once it's been eaten or we throw the bottle away, right? To kind of the origin. Mm -hmm. How is something made? It's interesting. I was filling out vendor paperwork for a client today and, you know, they send over a 15 page document that basically says, if you're a supplier of chocolate or corn, et cetera, like, do you treat your farm workers fairly? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting as a data technology vendor, which this doesn't apply to me because we don't do that, but that every single person filling out any type of vendor work to work with this company needs to certify that they are in some way making sure their employees are being taken care of. And that's something I think like it's a change in how we view sustainability to is the raw product mm. actually sustainable, right? I, I can never pronounce this word rege regenerative, um, right? You nailed Ask it. Them, say that five <laughs> times fast, right? After midnight. But yeah, like even different ways of farming, consumers are becoming much more specific in how they define sustainability. And I think it's causing the CPG and FMCG world to start to explore what does that look like? Because especially when we go back to that food insecurity concept, if people have fewer resources, they're going to look for things that are less expensive, but they're going to look for things that align with their values. And I, I am a firm believer that people will still prioritize to some way the earth if it's within reach for them to do so. Yeah. Just to add, you talked about um, the agriculture side. There is a level of how much food is wasted before you, it even hits your fridge. That's right. Oh, so yeah. one of the future bridge bits that we've been working on a lot this year is we've got, we've got two precisions, precision agriculture, and we'll pause a minute precision fermentation, but we might get to that when we get to alternative proteins. But there's few bits that are quite exciting. A lot of it's using drones, which is all cool, but... The idea that on a farm you can plan so much better by using some of these new technologies. And I just want to ping a few of the names, and you probably talked them out in the podcast a lot, but that really fill me with excitement. So the idea that you can monitor your soil, which is awesome. So it's just monitoring it. It's knowing that 
actually, this is, I need to add to this soil. I need to change the nutrients. I need to maybe plant something different or not remove so that you can reduce waste as early as that. And also keep your soil fresh. You've got your yield and estimating yields better so that you know you're going to be growing too much, too little. You've got your monitoring, constant monitoring of your crops. And then it's also being able to sort of use devices to detect your insects and monitor your the health of your crops, not just the soil. Using chemicals sparingly in the right way and not just generically. And then managing your irrigation systems. We don't just need to flush water every single day like a, a golf course. You can manage that much more specifically, which is why we call it precision. And so all of these areas will get to a place where we're not wasting early. So that will cut a huge volume of the waste that we have before it even hits the consumer. So some of those areas that really, I know that was just a big overview, but are really exciting at the moment for us when we're talking about early stage tech. The next question, does the consumer have any idea what I just talked about? And what could we, you know, what could we do to say this is sustainably farmed is about as far as a claim is going at the moment for 10% of consumers that read that. So it's that how do we change that and help the consumer to realize the impact of this what some of the companies are doing wonderful things that we look at and you can name a, a number so i'm not going to name just one but they're doing wonderful things like this so how do we get the consumer to understand this and choose companies because of work like this so there we go and i think it's a great question i mean and we work with a load of startups which are doing exactly what you're saying as well you know the precision agriculture the you know the soil health the uh, satagrow i think is one of our startups who do the satellite thing i agree that it's great to get consumers to have more awareness and i think the transparency is increasing i guess to a certain extent though part of me thinks well if we're talking about things inputs into farming how much of it matters as long as by the time it gets to the consumer it is better and we've used less and we've used less water as long as the food industry themselves are kind of looking after that part maybe that's enough for the consumer but i mean sam what do you think yeah no i i often come back to uh michelle obama who said right to know your farmer is to know your food and i i think We've kind of greenwashed things, right? We pinkwash things. We we wash over things. I think consumers across the board have slight skepticism increasingly in the past few years of like, what actually am I being sold, right? Mm. And so I think businesses owe it to consumers to be much more transparent and consumers really should hold businesses accountable to like, what actually is this to you, right? Not just kind of how does this find its way into the supermarket or into food service, but like actually what actionable steps are you as a business making so that what I am eating is sustainably created in some way. One thing I will add that I think often sustainability gets a lot of discussion, especially more into the retail side of things, right? Because consumers feel they have slightly more control over that. They can buy a bottle that is made from corn, right? Or they can read the label and see, did it come from certain fields in certain countries where workers get certain rights? I think we're also starting to see, what is it? I think on menus themselves, it's a maybe 131%, 132% increase in restaurant menus actually mentioning concepts of sustainability. Interesting. And so they're saying to consumers, right, which often really starts farm to table, but how is food service starting to convey to consumers, listen, what you're eating here is also sustainable, not just what you're buying in a grocery store. 
Okay, so increased transparency is the demand here, but actually some businesses, particularly in that sort of food service sector, are are already stepping up, which is great to hear. Before we move away from sustainability, and as you say, it is a huge topic, just to talk about alternative proteins um, for a moment. I mean, we have spoken about alternative proteins or protein diversification, many, many podcast episodes, because it's vast. I mean, you've got microproteins. We've spoken about the growth of algae, chickpea protein, which, Ed, I, I know you're a chickpea fan, so I'm sure that's uh, <laughs> that's something that you're happy to see. But, you know, so I guess big question, I mean, is this space continuing to grow and I guess we can move straight on to cultivated meat after that. Yes, we start to see things like, uh, you know, the FDA approval of this or moving towards approval. So it seems to be becoming something that governments at least are more prepared to accept. But yeah, big question. So alternative proteins, still growing, still demand for it and cultivated meat, you know, where's it going? Sam, I can see you nodding away. What, what's your thoughts? <laughs> it can't go away. There's no way it can go away. Mm. The current system is totally unsustainable. So I would say one to those in the industry, like continue to do what you do, right? You might not see it necessarily happen in the next five years, but you're starting something amazing. And consumers are starting to say that. Consumers are starting to say, we realize this system is broken. We realize from an animal rights perspective that it's broken. But I think most importantly, consumers care about health and they care about taste. And this industry is going to have a challenge until it figures out things that are healthy mm-hmm. and most importantly, something that tastes good. I have tried so many cultivated meats, alternative meats, alternative cheeses, you name it. Some of them are amazing. Some of them I wouldn't serve to my worst enemy. Um, <laughs> maybe I would, but who knows? Um yeah, I, I would say like it's absolutely been a, a pivotal shift and, and consumers are starting to realize that also. Amazing. Pivotal shift. Ed, do you agree? Yeah, because food insecurity, we just talked about it at the beginning, is happening there. We have no choice. As we said, 10 billion people, we need to feed them. And it's not going to be the decimation of the meat industry to just be replaced by alternative protein. All of these protein solutions need to play a part and cultivated will become a very, very large segment. Of it and hopefully be the cheaper end of those options as well so we absolutely this is an area that's that's got to grow and it's looking really exciting because of the techniques that we're seeing to target you know organoleptic properties if you want to call it that but your your, your taste your textures your price your mass production as well just getting it out of a lab and into a into a factory all of that is looking good the big problem with cultivated, though, it's not like uh, you can go and get a cow, slaughter it, and there we go. We've got a load of pieces of meat to put in the supermarket, even though it might be destroying the planet or not. It's the, the whole process is has its own challenges at mm. every single level. And that is why this needs a lot of investment to get it to a solution stage as soon as possible. I can talk about the process in a moment, but it, it's... That's the biggest challenge is that, it, it, that you need a lot of partners working together because one company is probably not going to do all the processes. They're not going to be experts at all the process. You need one company with its commercial scale partnering up with one startup that can make the scaffolds that you print the meat on. Yep. And then you've got another company that makes the serum that you can feed the meat on and, and so on. So it's going to be a big team effort, but it's going to change everything. Hopefully. Yeah, thanks, Ed. And I think this you, you hit on a really interesting point about that 
community and everybody working together in the food system, uh, I mean, that is something which is so, so vital and something that we're always trying to push at EIT Food. So I'm glad you brought that up. I think alternative proteins is also a nice way to start talking about healthier diets, because this is another area that people are usually quite interested in. Do you see that alternative proteins are going to get, let's say, cleaner you know i guess in the past they've had a little bit of a bad rap because in some ways they were just another way to get junk food into people's onto people's plates but do you see that actually alternative proteins are you know getting that kind of clean label are becoming more nutritious and therefore people are going to be choosing them even more sam what do you think i think healthier food is a very i mean in many ways it's like sustainability right it's how do we even define what healthier food is, yeah. right? How do we define what cleaner labels is? Actually, something I know we've been doing a lot of work here with clients on, I, I wrote down some of these numbers. We found it was, there's been a 35% decrease since September 2020 of consumers talking about healthy food. Um, mm. But it's interesting because you think like, what do you mean they're not talking about healthy food? Health food is everywhere, right? Healthy eating is all over the place, but it's turning into they're much more hyper-focused. They're much more specific on what they want out of healthy food. So healthy food is going no place. The term healthy food is. so, And we can look at this more in a minute. But when I think when we talk clean, clean food, whether it be in, in meat alternatives, whatever it may be, we're going to inherently see the rise of these specific claims that the industry is going to have to respond to. Right? It's almost like MSG. People were like, MSG is bad for you. And then everywhere you saw it was like, no MSG. I think clean food is going to be another kind of green stamp people put on things. Right. But similar to sustainability, they're going to expect to see transparency from, from the business of what that actually means and how they've adhered to that standard. Thanks, Sam. And Ed, do you agree what Sam's saying? Do you think uh, that becoming more transparent and better choices in this space? Yeah, I just hope the term clean is gets demolished mm, personally. Just it, yeah, clean, the word is clean because people think clean food means that it can't be processed. And processing food doesn't always mean the food is really bad for you because so much of the cultivated meat is never going to live if processes aren't allowed. But yet some companies are defining it as clean meat, which is totally ironic mm. for consumers. From what I think consumers think clean means no ingredients processes that isn't a natural course of action mm -hmm. so you just have fresh ingredients written down and they've just been pressed or something it's not there's not and i think that we need a redefinition of what clean means so it's the total transparency but also it's health bodies just coming out and say this type of process is good and this type of process is isn't is less good yeah and it's also giving consumers the healthier options to be at the same price value as the non because they probably will make good choices but when when they're really struggling to pay that's why fast food and junk food and indulgence you know wins because it's pretty cheap still still cheap yeah however much we're talking about it and however much inflation is happening it's still cheaper than the fresh stuff i know yeah, it's. Um, I think it's going to take a bit of a revolution for uh, for that to happen. But you know, here's hoping. Can we talk a little bit about personalised nutrition? It's a space that I mean, I've kind of watched with interest, and you know, I'm a huge fan. For example, of like the the Zoe app, which you know, it has now gone global. But during the pandemic, you know, the huge kind of genetic studies of mass populations, and they're really now looking to use that data to you know, to personalize the, the food for people and just allow people to avoid the things which are bad for them specifically. 
are you both seeing that personalized nutrition, the, you know, the companies, the startups moving into this space and the technology is advancing at a good pace? And, you know, do we think that personalized nutrition is is here? And, you know, is it is it going to keep growing? Ed, what do you think? We were talking about this a few days ago. See, I think there's the extreme end of personalized nutrition, like sending in your your blood or your urine or your whatever to to then design your diet for you. I think it's never going to be mainstream enough for the, every consumer to be able to access that. What I do think is very clever is, as you said, is supermarkets, companies, regions thinking about their population and mm. going, okay, kids in the UK or kids in in Japan, they have on average there's a, a specific health areas that we should be targeting let's go and launch and i don't necessarily think it's always in supermarkets in school meals in mainstream kids snacks in food service and you don't even have to shout to the consumer to say you're doing it so much but target those big population functional health areas with ingredients health claims that can can help them so personalized nutrition isn't about it, it, at that level personalized just for me mm. we can do that if you want to give me some supplements but actually just saying kids and 15 year olds in the uk they're missing zinc from their diet i don't know and then you start thinking about okay let's target them with particular ingredients and products so i think it's it definitely that is coming and we can see that that's happening in certain markets and some big brands are testing that at the moment but it again i think it's going to need governments and big health bodies to really lead that forward mm. and they probably will but it that that will make it a bit more mainstream i was wondering if there's a there's a new term here like mass personalization or something like that <laughs> and sam is that in your space are you seeing you know the the companies coming to you are, are you seeing them sort of looking more into personalization or like ed says on a broader scale yeah i think we're starting to see businesses discuss that concept as well of like we're not ever going to just, you know, send blood samples through the mail to some lab to tell me what's wrong with my stomach. I feel bad for the delivery people that have to do that every day, right? We have to approach personalized nutrition on a, just a much larger scale, right? Personalized can be millions of people. What I think we are starting to see increasingly more conversation about, though, is that nutrition isn't siloed. And personalization of nutrition doesn't mean, okay, if I attack this specific column, I'm going to solve these 12 things. Collagen to me is always the example. Collagen, right, often associated with hair and nail growth. We're starting to see a major increase in associations with, say, gut health, right? So how can we create kind of an interconnected web of ingredients that will lead to actually a much more complete nutrition mm, and sometimes i think we talk personalized it's very specific and it actually needs to be much more holistic got it so it's like if there was a way to put together a cocktail of ingredients which actually serves a much wider population actually that potentially is where things might go yeah and i think you know we we, we see that I'm, I'm not sure if it's like this the the world over but i know in israel there's such a big focus on it was protein right Every single thing had protein. It had 20 yeah. grams of protein. All the yogurts have protein, protein, protein. I'm often asked as a vegetarian, right? Where do I get my protein from? Yeah. Um, right. And I think to myself, I'm a CrossFitter four days a week. The better question is, where do you get your fiber from? Right. <laughs> and <laughs> that's the question we should actually be asking ourselves. And I, I yet yeah, it's, it's like, once again, we've, we've, we highly focused on protein and it's like, yeah, but most of us aren't 
bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. We're not trying mm-hmm. to get these rich physique. We're trying to get, yeah, like a better holistic approach to nutrition. And that can be a much more generic concept across the board. Love it. Love it. Okay. Thank you both. Right. We are now entering probably my favorite part of these shows where we go, we start to look really far into the future. So what's on the horizon for us beyond 2023? So Ed, uh, in in your company, you do a lot of future scaping. Sam, mm-hmm. you're seeing all of these trends, you know, from consumers, from retail, from from service. So what's really exciting you in this space? And what, what are you seeing that people would just love to hear about? Ed, what about you? And this can be across, you know, let's not chunk it into sustainability health, just, you know, anything yeah. that you're seeing, which you think, wow, that's super cool. So at Future Bridge, we definitely do some of this stuff, but we're also trying to make sure brands can develop things now. But um, I was reading, I think, when there was stuff going on with NASA a couple of weeks ago, and you mentioned space. Mm. But are we going to have a future where we have, instead of urban farming or underground farming, can we have mass big space stations? They're growing food. And that's what they do. I'm not talking about going to live on Mars. I'm just talking about food, food production. Mm. And I had a bit of a look at this from NASA have been announcing over the past year, they've been talking about doing a lot of testing in space. I've this, got the name yeah. here and I've got it on my, oh, over here. And they call it veggie. Um, essentially, they, they're starting to grow in very interesting environments. Of course, you know, the lack of gravity, the lack of, you know, you need to sort of produce microbes here, yeah, the, the lack of soil, what the change of the lighting issues. But actually, it's not just about the growing in space, but what can the really harsh environments of space educate us about producing food on the ground? Yep. So I read a really interesting one, which was that there's a system that they're using in NASA called Advanced Astroculture, A-D-V-A-S-C. But it's about growing in environments without gravity mm-hmm. but then could you replicate that on the planet with in wine for example so producing wine faster with brilliant quality because you change the environments the storage conditions you've tested it in space and can you do that on the planet without having to wait 20 years for wine to taste nice and do that in a few months oh, um, but some of those ideas that you could learn from harsh environments and maybe we're going that direction in a few years so what might the future look like well we might be able to learn now to be ready for a future that's more realistic unfortunately than than anything else and therefore we can be more prepared to grow in those environments so space food not sounding ridiculous in little but actually growing agriculture that was one i've got one more if i'm allowed i'm going to make this quicker You've probably seen the film Wall E, mm-hmm. um, where you've got your planet and wheel, you know, little remote control cars floating around, you know, planets and and having food from basically three D printing machines. And mm-hmm. I don't know if we want to go to that extreme of unhealthy fast food, but I do think that's might maybe where we're going with our at home food. So you'll get maybe hopefully healthier pods and tubes and things that you'll screw into your machine at home or in your restaurant, and you'll play with your dials and say, I want to have a lasagna with my smoked provolone that's plant-based with my tomato and plug it in, press go and, and, you know, printing at Mm. home in that kind of way. And 
I also think we're not far away from that. We've started to see plant-based fast food being able to go and say, I want 50% fat in my steak or my, my burger. I want these veggies to be included in my burger's composition formulation. Please make it for me. And they'll make they'll print it in in the restaurant and then they'll cook it. The traditional way. Yeah. But the idea that you can that we'll get to a future a little bit like that. So those are my bonkers things. Mm. <laughs> um and there are more realistic things, but those are my bonkers things. We like bonkers. So thank you for that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we must have been reading the same article about space food, space mm. production, you know, resource efficient agriculture, powdered proteins going more mainstream because of the fact that, you know, it's it's what astronauts are going to be using and it makes more sense to use it on an Earth where things are just scarcer now. Long life food again. Long life food. Um, <laughs> Sam, you know, are you, are, are you seeing interesting things about sort of space food and you know these kind of super advanced tech which potentially we could then bring back to earth so to speak yeah i would say from the consumer side honestly not so much right it's 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 almost too abstract mm -hmm. i in terms of what actually can we make on space or produce in space what i think we do see translated in the consumer world and it, it kind of goes back to what i mentioned at the beginning is this idea of escapism yeah. right going to space is an escapist concept. People are looking for ways to escape. They're looking for ways to explore just different things and take an adventure. And that's how I see consumers kind of playing this out in their day-to-day. -day. We're not going to space anytime soon, but I can cook a different type of meal from a different country or a different culture and explore maybe an experience that I would have never had otherwise. Got it. And just before we wrap up then, are there any, is there any technology, any startup, anything that you've seen, which is not necessarily, you know, 20 years, 30 years out, but is there anything that you're seeing now, which just kind of gets you super excited that you, you kind of want to have yourself? Uh, Sam, I, I see you nodding away again. What, what have you totally. got for us? I'm, I'm, and I say this as the chief cheese officer, right? I am so amazingly fascinated by the non-animal dairy products. I think mm. that being able to create actual, I was at the National Restaurant Association Conference in Chicago in May and standing at one of the booths and someone was like, you know, is this dairy free? And the person working at the booth goes, you know, if you're lactose intolerant, no. If you're a vegan, like this doesn't actually come from an animal and watching someone try to grapple with this concept. Mm. Um, but what's amazing to me about it is that by creating non-animal dairy products, you've actually created dairy. You've created the basis about which the product is created. And so rather than necessarily, which is why I think actually cultivated meats are so interested or so interesting because it's like, how can I get the actual product, not some configuration of a zillion things, but here's actual dairy mm. that I can use to make ice cream. Mm. Um, I think it winds up tasting significantly better as a result. And I'm so, so excited to see where that those types of companies companies go. Oh, amazing. I love that sort of, yeah, yeah, cultivated dairy or whatever the phrase is. But yeah, that's amazing. And they're bringing them, by the way, right? There's like, I know there's Remilk here in Israel. There's Perfect Day. There's, mm. there's multiples of them. And it's, yeah, it's like, I can't wait to try these in, in kind of bigger scale. Yeah, um, same. I would love to see cheese not made from cows, but that tastes exactly like a lovely boucher. Cheese, not from cows, folks. You heard it here. It's coming. Um, <laughs> and what about you, Ed? What, what's getting you excited? It's a really simple one that I saw this year. We do a lot on sugar reduction. And 
this this we've never seemed to really crack this right sugar reduction never seems to really be achieved because consumers they're very good at knowing when something's had the sugar taken out because sugar tastes really really nice let's go simple and then there was this technology that we we were looking at earlier this year and i'm going back to my printers but it's just a clever process and i just want to talk about process but printing chocolate in layers Mm -hmm. to trick the mind in thinking that the sugar content is 100%, but you print the outside layers with 100% sugar. And as you print, you change the layers and say, reduce down to 20% sugar. Then as you go back to the outside, 30, 40, 60, 70, 80% sugar. And overall you've reduced the sugar by 40%, but because the human mind can be tricked that as you eat it, you don't know any different. That's amazing. And very, you know, some interesting technologies like that, that that is in quite an early phase. So if you look at sugar reduction in patents, for example, um, which we've done and 3D printing together, it's still, you know, there's very, very little research happening in the space, but we saw that technology. And some of those ideas that sometimes it's not about replacing the ingredient or finding another sweetener or find, actually some of these little, little technologies just doing it can, differently can, yeah mm. and i loved that mm. um can we mass produce that and then sugar tastes just the same as indulgent but we were all healthier and better off for it so there was there was that one which i really like and it's really simple because we talked about all <laughs> the other cool ones but that one was Love exciting it. for me from from super high tech in space all the way down to the kind of the low tech just printing chocolate in a different way to give you the same taste um, thank you both that was incredible i mean we've got so many amazing things to look forward to so to wrap up then for everybody where can listeners go to find out more information about what you do ed let's stay with you sure so Go to futurebridge.com or you can find me. So I'm at Edward Bergen on LinkedIn. You know, you can look us up and get in touch and we can demo what we do, our platform and, and our sort of services. But you'll see us around talking about early stage tech and all of our cool and funky, clever scientist people talking about early stage technology and, and the players behind them. Um, but that's it. Look at futurebridge.com and, and get in touch. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you very much. And Sam, what about you? Yeah, I would say go to tastewise.io. It's Sam Newman on uh, on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, I would uh, I would encourage everyone to. There is a free version of the site as well, and we often say, right, like I'm looking to do research on blueberry bagels and I don't know where to go, and you can just type it in, and it says, listen, here's at a click of a button exactly what consumers are eating and drinking and and why. So would totally check it out. That's where we'll be. Fantastic. And I can also absolutely confirm I have been checking out your uh, your free site. So many amazing kind of <laughs> trends and love all of that. So please, everybody, check it out. So that just leaves me to say a big thank you to Sam and Ed and thank everybody for listening in. This has been the Food Fight podcast. As ever, if you'd like to find out more, head over to the EIT Food website at eitfood.eu. And please also join the conversation via the hashtag EIT Food Fight on our Twitter channel at EIT food so thank you everyone and to all our listeners uh, we'll see you next time 